Good morning. Good morning. All right. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you all as we gather to worship uh, the Lord and uh, just enjoy the fellowship of our brothers and sisters. It's, it's good to be here. If you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 19. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to reach down and borrow one of the Bibles that are located in a number of the chairs situated around you. Last week, if you were with us, you may recall our very own Perry Penley brought a great word from the Lord concerning coming down from the mountaintop. Uh, we looked at Jesus, his, res, um, his interaction, excuse me, uh, with a few of his disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it also looked at the mountaintop experiences had by Moses and Elijah, and what transpired as each of them came down from those mountaintop experiences. Perry made eight observations. He was very distinct to say they were observations and not points because evidently pastors only make points and he's not a pastor. So he just made observations, but, uh, it was a great time in the Lord, a great word for us to consider. And I was very thankful for Perry and his ministry to the body last week. But today we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Uh, if you recall two weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of Luke chapter 19. We learned about a wee little man named Zacchaeus, and I will spare you the song so that it isn't stuck in your head all day Sunday like it was two weeks ago. Um, in our lesson, we learned about how Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, encountered the Lord there on the roadside through Jericho. Zacchaeus had climbed up into a tree in order to get a glimpse of Jesus. And when Jesus passed by his way, Jesus stopped. He looked up into the tree and he called Zacchaeus to himself. Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. And on that day, salvation came to the house of Zacchaeus. By faith, he proved himself a son of Abraham. And he demonstrated that faith through his subsequent actions, promising to give half his money to the poor and to return fourfold to those he had taken excess from. Our account today, it picks up from the very end of that portion, depicting the crowd still standing by, having heard Jesus' declaration of Zacchaeus' faith. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. And the title of our study is going to be Occupy till I come. Occupy till I come. Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and his word? I'm going to read through our portion of scripture from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, I want to encourage you, do your best to follow along. Luke writes the following in verse 11 of Luke chapter 19. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minas and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, Having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over 10 cities. 
And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10 minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. The nobleman continues, For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. All right. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray and ask God to lead us through it. Father, we thank you for your word and the opportunity that we have to open it up to allow your word to mold and shape us, Lord, into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that your word is active, that it's living, Lord, that it will accomplish that which you set it forth to do. And so, Lord, we just want to submit ourselves to the work of uh, your Holy Spirit in us, Lord. Uh, We pray that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us, direct us in the truth of your word, that we might understand not only how this text uh, applied to the immediate audience, but Lord, how it applies to us, Lord, and what you would have for us to take from this this morning. And so, Lord, we give you this time of study. We again ask for your Holy Spirit's leading and guiding, his empowering. Lord, I pray that I'd be able to bring forth this message with clarity, that we would be able to understand all that your spirit desires to say to us, your church. And I ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. This morning, we come across yet another parable that's given to us that doesn't have an explanation or an interpretation given to it. And so we must dive into the scriptures and with the help of the Holy Spirit, try to figure out what heavenly truths this earthly story is teaching us about. You know, this parable is unique to the gospel of Luke. You will not find the parable of the ten minas in any other gospel record. However, there is a similar parable given in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, called the parable of the talents. Maybe you've heard of that uh, parable. Some have assumed that these two parables are the same teaching. And that they, that the gospel writers simply got some of the details a little mixed up in their accounting. One talks about minas, the other one talks about talents. Both are measurements of money. And so it's like, oh yeah, they just kind of, it's the same teaching, right? You know, both parables deal with a man who has to travel to a far off place or country. Both parables have servants in them that are given money by the man before he departs on his journey. Both parables highlight the return of the man and the accounting that was required by the man amongst his servants that were entrusted with his goods. Both parables show two servants being rewarded for their faithful stewardship of what was given to them. And they both have one servant that failed to do anything with their master's good and depict that servant having what was first entrusted to them taken away from their possession. 
And so there are a lot of similarities. And because of that, some speculate, well, it's the same teaching. And therefore, the interpretation and the application of these parables is the same. But I believe to make such a speculation and to assume the gospel writers got some of the details a little mixed up to be a grave mistake. Okay? When you look at the details within the parables and the surrounding context of the parables, you will see that these teachings are, in fact, two different teachings and that the interpretation for each parable is unique. The setting for both parables is different. Okay, the parable before us, it takes place in Jericho prior to Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem, while the parable of the talents takes place in the city of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. The audience in our text consists of Jesus' disciples, Zacchaeus and his friends, and the crowd that was following Jesus as he made his way into Jerusalem. The audience in Matthew's account is only the 12 disciples who actually came to Jesus asking about the end times, and he gives what we commonly refer to as the Olivet Discourse, a a long teaching in chapter 24 and 25 about the end times. In our parable of the ten minas, the nobleman gives to each of his servants all the same amount of money, one mina. While in the parable of the talents, the master gives various amounts to his servants. One was given five talents, another was given two talents, and there was one servant that was simply given one talent. Okay? In the parable of the talents, the faithful servants were rewarded equally, okay? both being told the exact same response from their master. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, and then again in verse 23, it's the exact same response. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And as we'll see in our parable of the ten minas, the faithful servants were given different rewards based upon their faithful stewardship. And so it is obvious that these teachings are not the same teaching. Therefore, we should not assume that they have the same interpretation and application. They need to be looked at individually. They need to be understood within each of their own contexts. And so we're going to jump into this parable. We're going to do our best to first identify all the important pieces to the parable. And then we will look to properly interpret the pieces and put them together to understand the overall application of this parable. So let's start by looking again at our opening verse where we're told why Jesus gave this parable in the first place. Read verse 11 with me again. It says, now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. We'll stop right there. Recall that Jesus is still in Jericho, presumably still with Zacchaeus, either at his house or just outside of his house at this time. Verse 11 refers to a group of people in the third person simply as they. Uh, and based upon the context, it's safe to assume that Jesus is addressing the crowd of people that were following him as he made his way through the city of Jericho. This crowd would again consist of Jesus's disciples, Zacchaeus and his friends, followers of Jesus, and even the mixed multitude who were pouring into the city of Jerusalem at this time because of the upcoming feast of Passover. Now, Jesus takes this opportunity to address this crowd of people and share this parable of the ten minas for two reasons, we're told in verse 11. Number one, okay, we're told that Jesus spoke this parable because he was near 
Jerusalem. Some of you may wonder why being near Jerusalem was so significant. Remember that Jesus is operating upon a divine timeline. Okay, he had been openly ministering to people for some three years up in the region of Galilee, but has since departed from that place and has set his face toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where Jesus will culminate his earthly ministry and will complete the mission that God the Father had given to him by going to the cross of Calvary and laying down his life in exchange for ours, paying the price for all of our sins. The fact that Jesus was near Jerusalem indicates to us that his time on earth was drawing to an end. His opportunities to speak openly about the kingdom of God and the people's need to repent, it is quickly coming to an end. And so because of that, he takes this opportunity to speak this parable. But that wasn't the only reason Jesus gave for giving this parable. We're also told that he gave this parable because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Many people were looking for the Messiah to come and to set them free from Roman oppression. They had a misconception about the kingdom of God and what Jesus as the Messiah was coming to do. They believed that the work and ministry of the Messiah would take place all at the same time. And that when he came, there would be an immediate establishment of an earthly kingdom. They did not understand that the Messiah would come at two separate times. Okay, that there would be a first coming followed by a second separate coming of the Messiah. They were thinking that when the Messiah would come, he would come as a conquering king, riding upon the back of a white horse, saving the day and saving the people from all those that oppressed them. They believed the Messiah would set up an earthly kingdom that would last for all eternity, that the Messiah would rule and reign in righteousness over all. And they were correct to think that the Messiah would do that, for that's exactly what he will do during his second coming. Okay? But before he will come as the conquering king, he first must come as the suffering servant. And before he comes as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah, he must first come as the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was headed to Jerusalem to set the people free, not from the oppression of Rome, but from the oppression and bondage of sin and death and hell. And the people thought that the kingdom was going to be established immediately, but that simply was not the case. The truth of the matter was that there was going to be a gap of time in between his first and second coming. The kingdom wasn't going to be set up immediately. It would be set up. It wouldn't be set up, excuse me, until after his second coming. And so because the people were thinking that Jesus as the Messiah was going to establish an immediate earthly kingdom, he taught this parable to set the record straight. So let's take a look at the details of this parable, and we'll begin to put the pieces together. Take a look at verses 12 through 14 with me as Jesus gives the the basic details of this parable. This is, therefore, he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. We'll stop right there. There are a lot of details packed into these first few verses that we need to properly identify in order to understand what Jesus is teaching here. To begin with, let's note the people that are involved in this parable. Okay, There are three main people or groups of people in this account. To start with, we're told about a certain nobleman. 
This nobleman was preparing to depart for a far country in order to receive a kingdom and return. Now, as we read this today in, in English, this may sound a bit weird to some of us. Okay, let me explain. During that day and age, it was very common to have people seek out opportunity to become king over certain territories or districts. We must remember that Rome is ruling over most of Western Europe, all of Greece, the Balkans, okay, the Middle East, and North Africa at this time. The Roman Empire was reigning supreme. And if you wanted to become king over a certain territory within the Roman Empire, okay, you had to get the approval from Rome. Rome was the one appointing leaders and rulers and kings over the various districts, territories, and kingdoms. And so the idea of a nobleman having to depart to a far-off country to receive a kingdom was something well, most people would be familiar with, especially the people of that day there in Jerusalem. For that is exactly how Herod the Great became king over Judea. He was given the title of king over Judea in the year 37 B.C., um, and his son, Archelaus, had to do the same when his father, Herod the Great, died. And we'll look at his situation a little bit more later. And so not only do we have a certain nobleman as part of our account, but we also read of how this nobleman had servants of his own. Ten that are mentioned in verse 13. These servants were called together and each given a mina. Now, a mina was a unit of measurement. Uh, the mina was a Greek weight containing a hundred a drachmas, uh, a drachma uh, was roughly equivalent to about an honest day's wage for most laborers. And so a mina, a hundred drachma, was about three months worth of salary for an average worker. Okay, The nobleman told his servants, do business till I come. The King James Version reads, occupy till I come. Okay, That's where we get the title of our study this morning. Okay, the idea is that they would invest the nobleman's money through buying and selling and uh, through trade. The nobleman wanted to ensure that his business would continue to go forward while he was away. And so he gave this money to 10 of his servants, expecting them to do business in his absence. Now, in verse 13, we're introduced to the third and final group of people on our account. These are certain citizens who hated the nobleman. We are told that these citizens not only hated him, but that they also sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Again, you guys, this may sound a bit weird, but this is how things were done at that time. In fact, this is exactly what happened when Herod Archelaus went to Rome in order to receive the kingdom left to him through his father Herod the Great's last testament. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes about this very thing in his Antiquities of the Jews. History tells us that Herod the Great had previously set up and uh, desired that his son Antipas take over his kingdom upon his death, that it was his desire to have him rule. Though he was not the eldest of his sons, he saw him as the most fit to rule and reign and to take his place. However, in Herod the Great's latter years, when many believed Herod the Great to have begun to lose his mind a bit, he was getting a little crazy and doing some really crazy things. I won't go into the details of all the history, but some bad stuff, um, somewhat delusional, uh, many would say. He ended up changing his mind, and he had it written in his last testament to have his son Archelaus rule. 
And upon his father's death, Archelaus assumed control over his father's area and started acting like king, though he was not officially appointed as king. Now, this caused a whole lot of uproar in Jerusalem. And what happened that one time uh, during the Passover, the Jews had gathered together in Jerusalem and they started basically a revolt up against Archelaus and him acting as king. Basically them saying, hey, you're acting like king coming in here and doing whatever you want, but you're not the king. Rome has not appointed you king yet, you know, and ended up happening is in order to put a squash to the movement, Archelaus sent in his troops and he had some 3000 Jews killed there in Jerusalem during the Passover. And so when Archelaus went to Rome to have the kingdom officially handed over to him, the Jews sent a delegation of 50 people from Jerusalem to speak out against Archelaus and to report what had happened there in Jerusalem to the Roman authorities. Archelaus was a bad man, bad man, okay? And the Jews hated him. And so the delegation was sent to Rome to speak against Archelaus, just like the delegation spoken of here in this parable of Jesus. And so Jesus is really using a real-life situation that had just taken place within their recent history to serve as a backdrop of this parable. Okay, As he spoke this parable about a nobleman going off to receive a kingdom and a delegation that's sitting there like, oh yeah, we, we're tracking. We know exactly what you're talking about because this just happened with Archelaus. Okay, now back to our text and more of the details. We've noted the people involved. Now let's note just the simple timing that's being discussed within this parable. There are two distinct times mentioned and a third implied time. There is the departure of the nobleman to a far country as a set time. This is mentioned in verse 12. Then there's the return of the nobleman mentioned when he instructed his servants to do business till I come. Okay, and the third implied time is the time in between the departure and return of the nobleman. This is an undisclosed amount of time. But there is a sense that it could be a long time. And that is why the nobleman makes sure that his servants continue to do business while he's away. Again, he wanted to make sure his business would continue even when he's away. And so he said, hey, I want I don't want my business or my you know, kingdom to start falling apart. I'm going to entrust you to the care and continue function of, of business as normal. I want you to do occupy until I come, do business till I come. The trip to Rome and back would take several months. It would depend upon seas and safe passages. We kind of understand a little bit about this just by reading through the book of Acts and how Paul, in his journey to Rome, many times they had to port and wait out because of the storms and the different seasons and, and they got shipwrecked and it was kind of crazy. And so the idea of someone going off to a far off land and to return, well, we don't know how long it's going to take. And so he sets these servants of his over his business over his affairs and says hey make sure you keep things going while i'm away now we could also note the locations that are mentioned there are two there's the kingdom on earth that the nobleman's wanting to receive to himself and then there's mention of a far country and i believe specifics aren't used here in this parable the historical context of what had just taken place with archelaus was herod the great's kingdom and the far country was rome so herod archelaus had to go all the way to rome Uh, But Jesus intentionally does not give the name of the far country the nobleman's traveling to, nor does he name the kingdom that he's desiring to receive for himself. And so we've got all these details. How are we to understand them? What do we do with them? What do these pieces represent? How are we to interpret this parable and the details within it? 
Well, again, let's look at the people involved here. I, there's some easy ones, I think. Okay, I think it's very clear that the nobleman in this account is meant to be a picture of Jesus Christ himself. Okay, Jesus is speaking about how he will depart into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to then subsequently return. His departure is seen in his ascension after the resurrection. In Acts chapter 1, we read, Now when he, referring to Jesus, when he had spoken these things while they, the disciples, watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The far country, it's meant to represent heaven. Jesus ascended into heaven to receive from his father the kingdom appointed to him as the Messiah and the Savior of the world. His return is something that we are still awaiting. We are currently in that undetermined in-between time of his departure and his return. Some like to refer to this time as the church age because it's the work of the church and what God's doing now. And that brings us to one of the other people groups, the servants. The servants seem to be a picture of believers, those who serve Jesus Christ. The servants are called together and are given the same resource, Amina, from the noblemen and are expected to do business with it until he returns. They are entrusted with the same exact thing and they're expected to use it for the nobleman's business. And so what is the Mina meant to represent? There are different opinions that are out there, okay? Some take a very vague and and broad interpretation and say that it simply refers to any sort of opportunities that are given to us. And we're all given opportunities to do various things for the Lord while we await his return. However, I think we can be a little more specific. In the similar parable of the talents in Matthew's account, the servants were given different resources. Okay? And I believe the proper interpretation to that parable has to do with spiritual gifts. We are all given at least one spiritual gift, but some are given multiple gifts. Some have five, some have two, but at least all have at least one. You know, some of you guys are just extremely gifted and blessed, and the rest of us, we've got like our one gift. And we're like, all right, I got my gift, you know. But the idea is we're all given different resources, but we're expected to use them to impact his kingdom. Okay? But here in this parable, everyone received the same thing. Okay, we don't all have the same opportunities. Okay, we all don't have the same gifts and and abilities. We are different and God doesn't expect us to operate in gifts and opportunities that he hasn't appointed to us. And so what is the single thing that every believer has been entrusted with? Let me suggest to you, I believe Jesus is pointing to the gospel message of grace. We have all been given the gospel of grace and Jesus expects us to do business with his gospel message. We are to go out and share it. We are to spread it. We are to multiply it until he comes. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, For if I preach the gospel, 
I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. Paul saw the gospel as something entrusted to him by the Lord. He had a duty, a responsibility to go out and to preach the gospel, to share it. It was something given to him that he might share with everyone else. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that as servants of Christ, all of us, we are to be considered stewards of the mysteries of God. These mysteries are the revealed truth of God through the gospel of grace. Paul says that as stewards of the mysteries of God, the gospel message, it's required for us that we be found faithful. We are to be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God, of the message of God's work of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. God has given every believer the same message, and we are called to be faithful stewards of that message until he comes. Now, the third and final group of people, the citizens, they represent the unbelievers, those who will not have Jesus to rule over them. The world has been fighting against Jesus ever since he first arrived, okay, from King Herod trying to kill baby Jesus to the religious leaders that crucified Jesus, to the principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age and spiritual hosts of wickedness that have continually come against Christ's church. They have fought against Jesus every step of the way. They want absolutely nothing to do with him, but all of their efforts will prove to be fruitless. Nothing's going to stop Jesus from attaining his kingdom and returning to claim it as his own, which brings us to the next portion of our text in verses 15 through 19. It says, And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. We'll stop right there. This parable, it depicts the return of the nobleman and him calling forth his servants to give an account for what they did with what was entrusted to them. Now, before we get into the details of the interaction between the nobleman and the first two servants, I want to note a few things that we can easily skim over without paying much attention to. Okay? And to do so, I think, is a, is a big mistake because there's some really important truths here that we need to highlight. First of all, I think it's extremely important that we note that the nobleman did, in fact, return. Okay? He went away for an undisclosed amount of time, but he did return. Listen, church family, Jesus Christ will return, okay? The testimony of the angels that witnessed to the disciples when Jesus ascended to heaven proclaimed that he would, in fact, return in the same manner. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know, some today mock the church. And they mock us and our belief in the return of Jesus Christ. You know, guys, this shouldn't be a surprise. Okay? This is exactly what Peter said would happen. 
Okay, in Second Peter chapter 3, okay, he wrote, Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. People will scoff. People will say that life just continues on and on. There is no Jesus. There is no coming return of Jesus. Peter says in response to this, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What promise? Promise to return. Okay. He is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord's return will come. Do not let scoffers of the last days turn you from this foundational truth of the Scriptures. Jesus is coming back. Okay? He's not slack concerning his promise to return to us, but is long-suffering, wanting as many as possible to turn to him before he comes, which gives even more weight to the stewardship that has been entrusted to us. God wants us to go out and share the gospel with others while there is still time to do so before he comes back. Second, I think it's also very important to note, not only did the nobleman return, but he returned having received the kingdom. This is important to note for historical importance, but also for a proper understanding of what is to come in our future. Historically, when Herod Archelaus went to Rome to receive the kingdom of his father, he returned, but he did not return as king. Caesar decided to divide Herod's kingdom amongst his sons. He did give the largest part to Archelaus, but he did not give Archelaus the same title of king as he had done for Herod the Great. Archelaus was given the title of ethnarch instead, and he was told by Rome that he would have to prove himself a valuable and trustworthy ruler before attaining the title of king from Rome. Guess what? It never happened for Archelaus. He was never given that title. He returned, but he didn't return as the king. And so it's very important that we know that Jesus Christ is returning. He's going to return and that he has received the kingdom that was appointed to him. And he will come and he will establish his kingdom here on earth at his second coming. This kingdom is commonly referred to as the millennial kingdom, which refers to the thousand year reign of Christ here on earth. Revelation chapter 20 describes this kingdom as a time where Christ will rule and reign and where Satan will be bound and cast into the bottomless pit and sealed there for a period of a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20 verses 2 and 3 talk about that. And we'll get more on Revelation 20 and its connection to us uh, still to come. So let's go ahead and look at what transpired between the nobleman and the first two servants who came forth. The first servant took one mina that he was given and he traded with it. He did business with it as the nobleman had instructed him to. And the nobleman's one mina had earned him 10 minas. Okay, that's a thousand percent increase. That's pretty good. All right. Uh, if you can get a thousand percent increase on something, you're doing really, really good for yourselves. Okay. The nobleman responded, well done, good servant. Okay? Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over 10 cities. The second servant came and he likewise did business with his master's single mina and earned five more minas, a 500% increase. Still very good. Not as good as a thousand, but still very good, right? And the nobleman responded, you also be over five cities. 
The nobleman rewarded the servants based upon their faithful stewardship of his resources. The one that was able to gain 10 minas was given the right to have authority over 10 cities in the nobleman's kingdom. The one that gained five minas was given authority to rule over five cities within the kingdom. Each was rewarded based upon the results of their stewardship. How does this apply to us? You may wonder, right? I believe that when Jesus Christ returns... We are going to be called forth to give an account of what we have done with what he entrusted to us. The scriptures attest, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In Romans chapter 14, verse 10, we will all have to give an account of what we did with the gospel message and our opportunities to spread it and to multiply it. Second Corinthians chapter five states, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I believe Paul described this accounting in first Corinthians chapter three. When he writes, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. The judgment seat of Christ, you guys need to understand the difference here, is not a judgment of sin, but it is a judgment of works. Our works will be tested. What we did for Christ will be tested by fire, and only that which endures the fire will be rewarded. The stuff that's burned up, okay, works that were built with wood, hay, and straw, okay, they will result in loss of reward, but not loss of salvation. The judgment seat of Christ is not a salvation type of judgment. Okay? And we need to make sure that you understand the difference between there's two different judgments that are talking about that are talked about within the scripture. There's the judgment seat of Christ and then there's the great white throne judgment. Okay? The judgment seat of Christ is for believers. Okay? Our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ because of our faith in him. We're not going to be judged based upon our sins because our sins have been washed away, but our acts, our works will be judged. Okay? The unbelievers, they will be judged for their sin there in the great white throne judgment. Okay? And so two very distinct judgments for two different people that result in two different things. One is, is judgment okay, and, and damnation, results in damnation. The other one will result in rewards okay, or the lack thereof rewards. And it would seem that the reward, okay, based upon what Jesus is teaching here, is going to be more opportunity to serve in his coming kingdom. We will be invited to take a place of authority over different aspects of his kingdom based upon our faithful stewardship now. 
Again, Revelation chapter 20 seems to speak of this as well. In verses 4 through 6, we read, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their heads. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Those who have part in the first resurrection, which I believe to be representative of all believers prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ, they will be invited to rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom. Okay, in the millennial kingdom. And it seems that our part in the millennial kingdom and the authority that we're given will be based upon our stewardship of the gospel of grace founded in Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes back, our works will be judged. What we've done with the gospel message will be judged. And based upon how faithful we were, he's going to say, all right, I've got a new kingdom. I'm setting up different people to rule and reign with me. I'm going to give you this because you were faithful with this. Okay. Or I'm not going to give you this because you weren't very faithful with this. I believe this begs the question, what are you doing with the gospel message of Jesus Christ? How are you investing in it? How are you building upon it? And what will you have to show for it when Jesus Christ calls us to give an account? Are you building with gold, silver and precious stones or are you building with wood straw and hay only that which passes and endures the test of fire will be rewarded my hope and my prayer is that we all want to be rewarded right let's take a look at the third servant that's mentioned in the counting he gave of the mina that was entrusted to him read verses 20 through 26 with me it says then another came saying Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You know that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10 minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. But the master continues, he says, For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. From him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. The third servant that came forth gave back the mina to his master after not doing anything with it. He was a disobedient servant. He was disobedient to the direction the nobleman had given to him. The nobleman had told him, do business till I come. But instead of being obedient to his master, he simply took the mina. He hid it away in a handkerchief and returned it to his master upon his return. And his excuse for not being obedient was that he feared his master. He thought his master to be an austere man. That word austere means harsh or severe, that he was very exacting. And he went on to describe how he felt his master was one who collects what he didn't deposit and he reaps what he did not sow. It could be that this servant felt like his master didn't do anything to deserve what he gained. 
that he didn't do any of the work, but was quick to collect on all the gains of others' efforts. Okay? He reaped what he didn't sow. He collected what he didn't deposit. Other people sowed, other people deposited, but he was taking. The servant is basically accusing his master of being harsh, of being exacting, of being lazy. This kind of attitude and response was completely unacceptable. The nobleman responded, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. The accusation of the servant was an offense to the nobleman. The nobleman questioned the servant and asked why he didn't at least put his money in the bank so that he could at least have collected interest with it. If you think I'm such a harsh man and demand so much, why didn't you at least put it in the bank? You would have got some interest uh, rather than giving me nothing. The nobleman instructed those standing by to take his mina away from him and give it to the servant who had ten minas. The people questioned the nobleman, stating the fact that his servant already had ten minas. But the nobleman responded, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. It's interesting, the others that were there, presumably the other seven servants that we really don't get much of an account of, They are there, and they don't like the idea of the servant that had 10 minas getting yet another mina, right? They could kind of complain, give it to him, but he he already has 10. Why why am I going to give him, why would we give him another one, right? But it wasn't their money to begin with, right? It was the nobleman's money, and he had every right to do whatever he wanted with his own money. And on top of that, it was in the best interest of the nobleman to give the mina to the servant who had proven himself to be the best steward of his resources. Why should he give his money to someone that was less faithful, right? It's like, I'm going to give it to this guy because he took one mina and turned it into 10. Why would I give it to you guys that didn't do that, right? This guy was the most productive with what I gave him. I'm going to give him more. And that's the basic idea. And then people say, hey, that's not fair. Why is that not fair? It's his money. That was the, the, the most faithful steward. I am going to give that one more. How does this apply to us? Well, hopefully it doesn't apply to us. Okay, that's my hope, is that this doesn't apply to us. Because this servant seems to depict the kind of person who is Christian in name only. They say they are a servant of Jesus, but never do anything with what God has entrusted to them. This person will end up suffering great loss when Jesus returns. The question of how great a loss is one that is not answered for us here in this parable. We aren't told what happened to this servant after the fact. Was he removed from his position as a servant in the household? Was he cast out to join with the other citizens who would not have this man rule over them? Or did he remain a servant in the house and and simply missed out on the opportunity to have further authority within the new kingdom? We aren't told what happened to this man. And the uncertainty is, is a little unnerving. For we know that there will be false believers in God's church. Satan sows his counterfeit into the church and the separation of the true from the counterfeit won't come until Jesus' second coming. Could it be that this servant was a false believer? He was a pretender in the nobleman's house, a servant by word only, but never truly submitted himself to the master? Possibly. Again, we can't say for certain because Jesus doesn't tell us the final outcome of this servant. But it could be, okay? And I think it's worth paying attention to and noting the uncertainty. We do know for sure that he suffered loss 
that which was given to him was taken from him, passed on to one that was more faithful. And I hope that this will not apply to any of us. Let's finish up our text. We'll wrap this all up. Read verse 27 with me. It says, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. The citizens who did not want anything to do with this nobleman, the ones who sent a delegation after him, clamoring about how they would not have this man to rule over them, were ultimately brought before the new king and they were slayed before him. Wow. This is a very serious matter. Okay? Those who reject Jesus. Those who say, we don't want to have anything to do with him. Those who say, we will not have this man to reign over us, will ultimately get what they want. They will be killed and they will spend eternity separated from Jesus Christ. Instead of having Jesus rule over them in his kingdom for all of eternity, they will instead spend their eternity in darkness and everlasting anguish with the devil and his fallen angels. You guys, this is such a crucial decision. Whether or not to have Jesus rule over you truly is a life or death decision. Okay? If you choose to not have him as your king, you are choosing death and hell. God does not send anybody to hell. We choose ourselves by rejecting Jesus Christ and saying, I don't want to have anything to do with you. We are saying, I want death and hell. Okay? But if you will surrender yourself to him and choose life, you will be welcomed into the kingdom and you will spend eternity by his side in heaven. And I pray that we have all made the choice to surrender ourselves to him as Lord and Savior of our lives and that we will be faithful with what he has entrusted to us. And we pulled out a lot of different details here in this parable, tried to unpack it and put it back together here. But I want us not to miss out on the big picture here. The application of this parable is quite simple. Okay. Christ expects us to do business with what he's given us while we await his return. Okay. He's given us his gospel message. He expects us to invest in it, to share it, to spread it. He's coming back one day, and when he does, we will give an account of what we did with what he gave us. And so let's be faithful stewards of what he has entrusted to us. That is what this parable is all about. It's that simple. We are to occupy till he comes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and this opportunity to just study it, to learn and glean uh, from it, Lord. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful stewards of that which you've entrusted to us, Lord. You've given to each of us the gospel message, Lord. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to invest in the gospel, Lord, that we'd be faithful to spread it, to multiply it, to share it with those around us. Lord, that we would do so by your spirit's power and by your spirit's strength, Lord. And Lord, I ask, Lord, that if there are any here, that have yet to surrender themselves to you, that they would do so today. Lord, that they would understand the impact of such a decision, that it is a life and death decision. Lord, to choose you is to choose life. It's to choose eternity with you in heaven. But Lord, to reject you, to say, I don't want to have anything to do with you, Jesus, is to choose death and hell. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's any that needs to make that choice today, that you would prompt their hearts, that they would be obedient to your spirits leading and guiding, and that they would surrender themselves to you today. Lord, for those that know you who are walking with you, Lord, I just pray, give us boldness. Lord, give us faith that's needed to go out and proclaim this wonderful, incredible message of grace that we have received. 
May we do so by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.